Thank you so much for the reminder. And we need that reminder more and more as time goes by. And especially those last lines. When it looks like you've lost it all and you haven't got a prayer, Jesus will still be there. You know, friends, that's where it's going to be before it's all said and done. Every earthly human support will be removed. And you know what? That'll be okay. Because if Jesus can march a few million people out into the wilderness and give them water and food, shade, and protection, he's quite able to take care of you. Discovering that now, before the crisis is on, is the point of the journey. So this morning, I'm appealing to you. It's time for us to embrace a different level of commitment to the times in which we are living. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering, the freedom of worship, the loveliness of song, the joy of giving. And now, Lord, I pray, open our hearts to the impress of the Spirit as we open the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I was, I was raised to be a good boy. A good boy. I mean, a very good boy. I've told lots of my stories. I'm going to tell a few more and even repeat a few. You know, it was, it was the, it was October 31, 1976, when a boy named Robbie, the class bully, picked on a boy named Jeff, the class nerd. It would turn out to be one of the worst days of my life for stories I won't go into today, but the the coming together of that moment. And for some reason on that morning, I engaged Robbie and told him to stop it. He turned the fury of his angst for some reason. I don't know if he got up on the wrong side of the bed, but he turned the fury of his angst on me. Now, Robbie had the benefit of being socially connected with those that were as weak-minded as he was and as characterless and they had formed the, what, what you might call in modern-day society the beginnings of a, a little club or gang. And, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And what I'll call the less character-inclined members of the class, he understood, kind of hung in the shadows on his side. And Jeff, the nerd, blonde, straight hair, kind of a large, curving nose, pleasant kid that never bothered anyone, didn't deserve to be picked on by Robbie. And for some reason that morning in my sixth grade year, 12 years of age, I decided to intervene. In the midst of the intervening, it turned into an all-out battle between Robbie and I. So we became the entertainment on the front lawn of the Market Heights Public School. And the entertainment was short-lived because two middle-aged men, Mr. Perkins and Mr. Detweiler, arrived not too long later and grabbed us both, you know, by the elbows and separated us from each other and took us directly to the principal's office. In the principal's office, uh, Robbie went first. Now, I had never been in trouble in all the years of my schooling, not once. I was good. I was good because I had a mother that made me good. And I knew that if I was bad at school, it'd be worse at home. And that's a good way to live, folks. Um, I'm not saying my mother never got in the game to make sure things made on the rails, but she understood that the teacher was her partner and that her son was in the developmental phases and he was not an angel. He was not a bad boy, but he was not beyond being bad. And so I had never been in trouble. I had never, to my knowledge, probably done anything wrong from kindergarten to sixth grade. And here we are in the beginning of the sixth grade year and I'm involved in a fist fight. And the blood is flowing down Robbie's nose, but because I have a, you know, I, I can't buy my shirts in a usual store. My arms, I've got a big spread. Uh, that's a 36, 37 inch arm on each side. And Robbie was so short that he could never land a blow on me because my arms were longer than his legs. And he tried to kick me every time he got close to me. I mean, he was such an unfair fighter. He was just not a nice boy. I hope he's grown into a better man. And I'm not using his last name because we live in a Facebook world. The truth of the matter is, is that I got to listen to his punishments. And the principal got out the paddle and I heard them, the whack, the whack, and the whack. 
And the trauma he had endured at the wrong end of my long arms was now meted up with the trauma that had come at the hands of Mrs. Omen and the wooden paddle. And he walked out of there sniffling. And I figured I was on track for the same thing, but I wasn't. Because Mrs. Oman had been the principal of this public school all of my life. I went back there not too long ago because my parents still live in that little town. And uh, they had memorialized her with a little outdoor uh, bench with her name on it. She was indeed a classy, dignified, wonderful older woman. When she got me in there, I don't remember everything she said to me. But she knew this was an unusual chapter. So when I was... Uh, directed to bend over and grab my ankles, um, I expected the same three whacks, but I got one. I walked out of there with one whack, Robbie having gotten three. I'm sure she set up that way on purpose because she knew I didn't cause trouble. I was a good boy. My mother forced me to go to that church school, and my life changed. I got a higher standard than my mom's value system. That standard became the standard of Christ. And in one of my classes, somewhere along the line, this quote was brought to me. I've I've memorized it at different times, although I'm not going to say it by memory to you this morning because I tend to get the phrases out of order. But I'm going to read it to you. You'll recognize it. And I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, is this quote still relevant for the 21st century? Should our children still be learning it? And should we be living it? Here we go. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall, education, page 57. Now I want you to think about that quote. Free societies are built on these kind of people. The protection of truth is the protection of civility and liberty for all people. In a postmodern world where there are self-made truths, this kind of person is going to find themselves in conflict, sometimes with the very institutions they most love, because we live not in a vacuum. And the people that run our institutions, sometimes even our own churches and schools, are not these kind of people. And it creates a huge problem. And to add to that, unfortunately, we've seen the politicizing of subject matter so that now it's hard to hear an idea discussed. It's always a person. And you've heard the phrase ad hominem. Ad hominem is a Latin word that means against the person. So what we do in our argumentation today is ruin the person in order to ruin their credibility. And this is what a postmodern society has to do. It's no longer the freedom of individuals to discuss an idea because people only want to protect preconceived notions, not go to higher ground to learn truth. Our society used to be united around a Judeo-Christian value system, but we've abandoned the Bible and its simplest sayings in favor of a new morality and a new gospel message that everybody should feel good all the time, no matter what the cost. The problem is it means there is no longer such a thing as civil discourse, where we talk about ideas, because ideas are now so longly linked, so largely linked to identity that we have personality and personal wars going on over ideology and power. We are in a very dangerous age. It is important for the church to maintain an objectiveness and to protect the final semblance of objective, truth-filled teaching and preaching and dialoguing. And that's where we are today. But we are on the cusp of great danger in this society. And it appears that the dynamic of power and ideology will not let certain things go away. Now I'm going to read another quote. It comes from Ministry of Healing, which has become another favorite of mine, which every pastor, this sermon is especially for pastors. This sermon is especially for church administrators. And of course, we can't let parents and everybody else, it's for everybody. But it's especially for leaders who are too afraid to be the person I just described. You will be held responsible for the loss of souls. The blood of people will be on your hands because you were too afraid to announce truth so people could make decisions. Now for the next quote. Some have no firmness of character. 
There is in true Christian character an indomitableness that cannot be molded or subdued by adverse circumstances. And this is the sentence that especially rings in my ears. We must have moral backbone. An integrity that cannot be flattered, bribed, or terrified. Now I'm here to tell you this morning that one of those three works for 90 some percent of the populace. You can be flattered into favor which you do not want to lose. You can be bribed through elements of greed and avarice. Or you can be terrified by the rational thinking ability to project what the future holds if you don't comply with those who hold power over you occupationally or in some other way. Flattered, bribed, or terrified. Which one would get you? This morning, I come to you in the name of Jesus, suggesting that the nobility of our Christian experience must continue to maintain and be the preservative, the conserving influence, the salt in a society that is rapidly losing its ability to have honest discussions about ideas because ideas no longer exist because we live in a postmodern world and ideas are shaped by person, not by objective reality. But there is no changing reality, friends. And this morning the reality is, is that the Romans are coming. What do I mean by that phrase? Well, in a moment we'll go back to our scripture reading. But I want you to understand that prior to the Protestant Reformation, ideas were not allowed to be freely shared. And it wasn't like Martin Luther or John Huss or Jerome or any of these men with all their American mentality and American liberties just decided one day they were going to make a blog post somewhere and start a reformation. No, these men often paid for their convictions with their lives. And the idea of the American independence and freedom of thought and religion these things are relatively new to the human experience. And we look back at these men and it's hard for us to project upon them anything but the kind of confidence that many Americans, many American Christians can and do have. Unfortunately, as the blessings have accumulated around us, it appears that we no longer are standing on the solid ground of deep conscientious conviction and a belief that honest discussion, respectable, non-demonizing, non-character destroying discussion ought to be going on. But it ought to be going on because when it ceases to go on, tyranny and totalitarianism is not too far behind. Free societies are built on free speech. They are built on the prerogative to share ideas. And while there are limits, like not declaring fire in a movie theater, those limits are held down to the bare minimum so that truth and liberty can triumph together. They only triumph together. Take your Bibles now and let's move to the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, I want to chronicle with you what happens when bad leadership is in the ascendancy. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have the story of David and Goliath. There are thousands of men, both Philistine and Jewish, lined up in the valley of Elah. And there in that valley day after day for over five weeks, the soldiers of Israel have stood and listened to the tirades of the champion of Gath. And when David is dispatched to take food to his brothers, his father is not aware that what he thinks is going on is not going on. Looking, if you would, at 1 Samuel 17, verse 19. The last thing that Jesse says to David on his way to Elah is for Saul and they, that is his three brothers, and all the men in Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. I want you to know, friends, that when you have poor spiritual leadership and there is no conviction and moral character, backbone as you might say, the degradation of the group follows the degradation of the leader. And this was happening in the nation of Israel, so much so that Saul, who had at least slain thousands, was afraid to go up against Goliath. And that meant everybody else was afraid too. So they lined up for 39 days, listening to the tirades of the giant, and nobody would do anything. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that they fled away. Verse 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. 
But there was one man who had maintained the simplicity of his Christian experience. Now hear me very, very carefully. It doesn't matter to me whether you're 8 or 18 or 58. The truth of the matter is, is that God architects every day to take you on the next step up in your Christian journey. And as soon as you surrender the simplicity of a clean and clear conscience and choose instead compromise and complicity with the evil tendencies of this age, you have lost the moral courage and the stink both to respect yourself and to contend with what is wrong in society, in the home, in the church, in the school, wherever it may be. There is something about a simple Christian experience, which is why Timothy will be told by Paul the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a conscience that is clean, and a faith that can be seen. This is the way that we maintain the freedom and the joy. As a matter of fact, our Sabbath school lesson talks about taking the yoke of Christ. David, in his fall, as he had sinned with Bathsheba, no longer had the freedom or the moral courage to face the situations he had created. But when he was restored by Nathan, some of that returned. The simplicity of your walk is to be childlike, not childish, and you are to hang on to the freedom of soul that gives you the joy to sing, the ability to say, I'm sorry, and the courage to be a Daniel, to do what's right. You cannot surrender these things. David came to the battlefield with them, the simplicity of, of, of a Christian experience that got him into trouble. He was in trouble before he faced the tyrant, the giant. It was his brothers he had to face first, and this was not the first time. They were not of the same moral caliber as he was, and that was evident before there was a fight with the giant. But he does find himself on the battlefield, and you can hear his cry, you come to me in the name of your own military prowess, but I come in the name of the Lord of Israel. And this day, I'll give your carcass to the birds. And when the helicopter began winding up and the sling was catching the wind, it wasn't long until the deep thud guided by the hand of the angels brought victory to David and the beginning of a culture change in Israel was underway. It is time for a culture change. And while we are not to go around making life difficult for people, we are no longer to continue bowing down at the world's places of worship to where we have no moral backbone. And we are flattered, bribed, or terrified into a complicitness with an age that is rolling over rights, liberties, and the pursuit of real spiritual joy and happiness. Now take your Bibles and go to the book of 1 Kings. In the book of 1 Kings, we're going to find another time. What was so unique about those 39 days, day 40 brought it to an end, was that Israel would line up day after day in the Valley of Elah and nobody would say anything. They were constantly speechless. We find that situation again in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, we find Elijah coming out of hiding. Three and a half years of drought has not brought Ahab to his knees, but it had at least brought him to a position of attentiveness. Elijah and Obadiah meet each other in the wilderness. And Elijah says in verse 15 of 1 Kings 18, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Obadiah was afraid. I'll go tell the king you're here and you'll be gone. Elijah says, I'm not running anymore. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? Now, the dynamic of ad hominem, which means against the person argumentation, is nothing new. Ahab could not talk about the realities of the drought through disobedience of his own, so he must create a problem out of the one who announced what was going to happen, not made it happen. But Elijah's not having it. He said, I have not troubled Israel, verse 18, but you and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed Baals. We find ourselves in the 21st century in exactly the same place. It's not so much that we've graduated away from the church. It is now that we look down our noses at the church with an archaic moral value system, which even modern theologians must say for the 2,000 years of its existence were misunderstood. 
So when it comes to issues of sexual morality, especially in this day and age, we must not only now see the church as the enemy, the bigoted, prejudiced enemy of the new reality of acceptance and inclusiveness, we must believe that the church actually created the problems that we are now rectifying. Yes, we have forgotten the commandments of God and gone after our own bales. Woe be unto us if in our homes the media outlets have such constant and repeating access to us that we actually begin buying into their messages. And by the way, the new 11th commandment, according to some, is that thou shalt be nice. Now, there's nothing wrong with nice, and Christians should typically be nice. But there is a firmness of Christian character that says, I'm not the trouble of Israel, you are. And there is a firmness of prophetic voice, whether it be parent, pastor, or teacher, that says, this is not right, and here I stand, I can do no other. It's time for a change. We find ourselves in a society where we are on that slippery slope to totalitarianism, where there is no longer reasonable civic dialogue, and ideas must be quashed, canceled, and taken off the scene of social discourse in order to maintain, for expediency's sake, the welfare of the masses. In other words, you're not smart enough to make your own decisions, and you don't have a right to be different. Now what is necessary is that the benefit of all, the corporate well-being, is looked out, and woe be unto the person who asserts individual liberty in the face of that corporate well-being. Elijah gathers them on Mount Carmel. Turn to the next chapter. He draws them near. Actually, still in this chapter, he draws them near in the next verses. Verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought all the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. There is a spiritual paralyzation that is on their soul because they have no, they have no fiber or sinew of strength their backbone is more of a jellyfish than a juggernaut for right. And Elijah alone, you can see as he stands on the mountain, you can see where he is gathering to his own negative detriment the idea that it's just him. Because as he's gathered everybody together after three and a half years of drought, just as he said it would be, still nobody has moved. Now let's go to our... Let's move towards our scripture reading. Turn to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, we have the story of a man who is rapidly becoming my new hero. John chapter 3. The Gospel tells us the story of a man of position, power, and place. He was a Pharisee, verse 1, John 3, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God and as a teacher... For no one can do these sights unless you do, unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, folks, you need to think about your spiritual DNA this morning. How were you birthed into the place you're sitting in right now in this church? Is this nothing more than a lifelong habit? Is this nothing more than a cultural tradition? Did you have to go through any hardship to embrace Christ? Or did you ride, as it were, on a, on a white horse like, like a king or a queen into this superior experience where you don't smoke, you don't drink, you live about 10 years longer, and you're not like those people down in the big city? I want you to think about this morning what your spiritual DNA is, because if you had nothing to overcome to embrace Christ, you are in an exceptionally dangerous position in this modern age of conformity. God is calling each of us to, be, to stand in our own lot and to understand that you can't flip courage on with a switch. Dr. Conrad Vine said to me recently as we were discussing a subject matter, that very statement. You see, what happens is, is God strengthens a man like he strengthens a muscle. And there's a little exercise that grows into more. And you cannot become the man you want to be that can put your face into the wind and swim upstream. The woman you want to be all at a sudden moment. No characters develop a day at a time and God is architecting the strength we need for the days in which we're living. And our children need it as well. Woe be unto the child who's never put in a position to conquer a challenge, to face a fear, to be uncomfortable, 
to do something difficult or hard. Nicodemus is a smart dude. He knows that coming into daylight will disparage his own reputation. So he comes at night. But he is a man of enough integrity to recognize that this appears to be a true Israelite and whom there is no guile. And there is something unique about it. The Spirit is stirring his soul, but he does nothing. He's as silent amongst his peers, it would appear, as those on Mount Carmel were gathered in the masses. Go to chapter 7 of the same gospel. Now in John chapter 7, we see a spiritual metamorphosis exhibited. We get a window on the life of Nicodemus. Something is happening behind the scenes. No human being can create this, but it must be a chosen path for those who live it. Yes, Nicodemus is becoming my new hero because he, is, he has the gilded Christian experience. He comes with all the privilege of prerogative and power and place, and yet he is on a journey to surrendering it to the integrity of a confirmation of the Spirit speaking to his heart. Verse 40 of chapter 7. Some of the people, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Now I want you to understand, Jesus himself said, don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, to set at naught, to set at variance, a mother and a daughter, a father and a son. Yet he is the Prince of Peace. For those who receive him, that peace floods their soul, fills their heart, gives them the ability to close the eye with no fear. But Jesus himself is the most controversial figure of all time. Verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him, which creates a problem because what the story brings us up to speed on is a duty of the temple guard to go arrest him and bring them to him. Then the officers, verse 45, came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to him, why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them and said, you've not also been a astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed him, but has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Now, I want to tell you the Romans are coming. We're not quite there in the narrative yet. That's John chapter 11. But I want you to understand when intellectual elitism distinguishes and we have a new class structure based on the ones who know and the ones who don't know, I want to assure you this is pre-Reformation tendency and the Romanesque way of doing business, which is might not right, is not far behind it. This crowd, they don't know anything. You know, the truth of the matter is republicanism is built on the power of the enlightened mind, the informed person. And when that is disdained and given second-class status, there can be no long-term assurance of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These things cycle in societies. When only the experts can ratify proper decision-making and guarantee what real corporate morality looks like, you are in a dangerous position. When there is scorn to the ordinary mind and the ordinary person, society is and its freedoms are hanging in the balance. There is nothing new under the sun. This crowd, they don't know what the law is and they're a curse. Verse 50, Nicodemus, parenthetically it states, who had come to him before, being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears him and knows what he is doing, does it? That's how this society is supposed to work. No idea is supposed to be taken off the discussion plate because somebody who knows more or better says, you're not fit to discuss it. I want you to think about what I'm saying. If you're really an expert in any subject matter, you can distill it down to the understandable regions of the normal IQ people. And when you can't do that, you are taking advantage of a specialization which given time and place, many other intelligent people could do 
proper dialogue with you in subject matter so addressed. The facts of the matter are is that there is a way to leverage learning to diminish common sense intelligence. And when that happens, we are in a dangerous place because no longer does the ordinary person hold autonomy over their own being. Now let's go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the culmination of this kind of thinking. In John chapter 11, we've had a man raised from the dead. And some were there to report it to the Pharisees. Lazarus, Jesus didn't go into the tomb. Lazarus came out of the tomb. And when Lazarus came out of the tomb, this was the nail in the coffin. Pardon the metaphor for Jesus. Verse 47, Therefore the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council. And they were saying, What are we doing? In other words, why have we waited around so long to get rid of this guy? For this man is performing many signs. It's going from bad to worse. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, I want you to think about expedient thinking. I want you to stop and ask yourself, where has expediency and elitism taken societies before? Before we're all said and done, I'm going to quote a ne uh, Martin Niemöller. So I can give you at least that much, that the ones with power and more knowledge, the ones who think expediently about, you know, removing the handicap, both physically and mentally, this kind of expediency thinking is exceptionally deadly to the weak and the vulnerable. It is dangerous to the freedoms of society. And yet the elites of Israel are full bore into this modus operandi. The Romans will come. Yes, indeed, there is this great fear hanging over all of us that if we don't step in and do something, great tragedy, a shadow portends of ill, a bad omen for this nation. Then Caiaphas speaks up. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Whenever scorn and mockery, whenever character assassination and derision of person must enter an argument, you are dealing with a dishonest person. Broad-minded, fair-hearted, true liberal thinking individuals can discuss ideas without destroying people. And as soon as you must deride or destroy the person who rep represents a different idea, you, my friend, are now part of the dishonesty and the evil that destroys the onward and upward progress of a home, a church, or a society. When you must resort to the destruction of person because your argument can't stand up to the power of truth, you, my friend, are on dangerous ground. And if you hold power, you are on doubly dangerous ground, for you might be responsible for the destruction of the nation, which these men were. The rebellion that was in their heart against the truth of God incarnate was the rebellion that led Rome to surround this nation. And while they were holed up in the sanctuary, Josephus tells us, pouring out boiling oil on the Romans... You can only imagine the fury and the hate of that kind of demonic resistance that led the Romans to the carnage that brought an end to the nation of Israel. I mean, this kind of self-important bigotry and rebellion is blinding to the person who has it and damning to the group that owns it. And that's exactly what happened. But he is prophesying. Go to verse 51. John makes it clear. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. In spite of himself, there is a transcendent message here that actually preaches truth. And not the nation only, John will write, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they planned together to kill him. Now, it's no big secret from here on out. Jesus is public enemy number one, but don't take my word. Let's read a little farther. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly amongst the Jews. He understood. He heard the message. But he went away from there to a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his, the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus... 
And they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all. Now notice verse 57. You've probably read it, but you probably never thought about it. Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. Now this is powerfully pathetic and ironically painful. Why do I say ironically painful? If I stood before you today and said there's an itinerant preacher working his way through Berrien County and the area ministers have determined that he should be seized and the next day there was a parade with this person walking down Main Street with people throwing their suit jackets down on the ground and palm leaves you would find this ironically very painful because somehow the memo to seize Jesus and arrest him hadn't quite been sufficient to shut down a triumphal entry. And so they're standing in the temple wondering if he'll come and Jesus for the next three days will be in the temple teaching and nobody's going to touch him. But the workers of evil must work in darkness. And so finally on a Thursday night, through the miffed persona of Judas, the dots are connected and Jesus is taken subject and he's destroyed. The Romans have come. The power of Rome has acquiesced. And indeed, the Romans would appear to be more righteous in this moment than the evil-hearted characterlessness of Caiaphas and his crew. You see, friends, we are living in an age where conformity is chosen in style, in speech, it's chosen in recreation and entertainment. And that indomitable spirit that can't be flattered, bribed, or terrified has been gently and sometimes intentionally weeded out of discourse. Now, I want to end with two illustrations. On June 5, 1989, a few photos were snapped that Time Magazine would call one of the 100 most important photos of all time. It happened in China. For those that are 40 years or older, you won't need a picture. For those of you that want to look it up, look it up. He's called Tank Man. It was a protest. And one tall, slender Chinese man holding a couple shopping bags walks out of a crowd and stands in the front, thank you, stands in the front of a row of tanks. You're just looking at a fraction of the tanks. There was a column of tanks blocks long. And as the tank driver in the front tank pivoted one direction, the man pivoted with him. And eventually, the tank operator turned the engine off and even opened the hatch, and they had a dialogue. The film that this was taken on, because it predates digital age, was hidden in a canister inside a toilet in a hotel room in the hotel the journalist was staying in because the Chinese police came and searched all the hotel rooms where the journalists were. Journalists were not allowed out to take pictures. But because this happened where they could see from the balconies of their hotel, we have these photos. We don't know what happened to Tank Man. We know a couple people appeared out of the crowd and drew him into the crowd. Some people believe that they were Chinese secret police. Other people believe they were other protesters who understood he was in big, big trouble. We may never know his name, but he did something that strengthened the backbone of thousands and yea, millions of others and ought to do something to us today. Because when you listen to the multiple tons of steel rattling on their tracks down the pavement of Tiananmen Square, and you need to make a statement that might does not make right. That kind of courage is to be honored. Whether this man knew Christ or not, he did know something about justice and liberty. In 1933, a man was elected to the German chancellorship. His name was Adolf Hitler, a leader in the Lutheran church in Germany by the name of Martin Niemöller thought this was a wonderful thing. He was a pastor and theologian born in 1892. But when Hitler came to power and he insisted on the supremacy of the state over religion, Niemöller became disillusioned 
and he decided something needed to be done. He became a leader of a group of German clergymen. They created what was called the Confessional Church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the book, The Cost of Discipleship is a name you'll probably recognize. They banded together to resist. In 1937, he was arrested and eventually confined to Sachsenhausen. I've been to Sachsenhausen. I've walked the hallways. I've seen the furnaces. He survived. And in the 1950s, he began making speeches. And most Holocaust museums will have these words somewhere in the precincts of their dark memories. There were many versions of this speech that does not change the fact that any of them were legitimate, powerful, and right. I'll read to you the longer version this morning. First, they came for the communist, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Writing, he said, they got rid of the sick, the so-called incurables. I remember a conversation I had with a person who claimed to be a Christian. He said, perhaps it's right. These incurably sick people just cost the state money. They are just a burden to themselves and to others. Isn't it best for all concerned if they're taken out of the middle of society? I want you to think about expedient thinking, friends. I want you to understand the slippery slope to totalitarianism and despotism that's involved when people of power exercise expediency as a reason to run over civil liberty and rights. And while civil liberty and rights is a bit messy and not always clean, it is the price that is paid for a society that is saved from the despotism of totalitarian thinking, acting, and doing. The persecution of the Jews, the way we treated the occupied countries of the things in Greece, Niemöller wrote, in Poland, Czechoslovakia, or Holland, that were written in the newspapers. I believe we confessing church Christians have every reason to say, mea culpa, mea culpa. In other words, Latin, for it's my fault, it's my fault. We can take ourselves out of it with the excuse that it would have cost me my head if I would have spoken out. Will the Lord pity us if it cost us a promotion or a job? It would have cost me my head if I would have spoken out when we preferred to keep silent. We're certainly not without guilt. And I asked myself again and again, what would have happened if in the year 1933 or 1934 there would have been a possibility of 14,000 Protestant pastors and all the Protestant communities in Germany defending the truth until their deaths? If we had said back then, it's not right when Hermann Goring simply puts 100,000 communists in the concentration camps in order to let them die. I can imagine that perhaps 30,000 to 40,000 Protestant Christians would have had their heads cut off, but I can also imagine that we would have rescued 30 to 40 million people because that's what it's costing us now. So you're afraid. Just remember, perfect love Cast out all fear. What do you love? And just remember, in Revelation 21, the first group listed on those that won't be in the city are the cowardly. Now there's something about Jesus that makes you able to go anywhere and not be afraid. There's something about Jesus that allows you to lie between soldiers the night before you die and sleep as deeply as the day before. There's something about Jesus that lets you sing when you're soldiered up by chains to the people that have beaten you with stripes. There's something about you that lets you shake off a snake into a fire and ride out a two-week tsunami. There's something about Jesus in the simple form that makes you scorned by the sophisticates and adored by the searching. 
I want you to think about this today, friends. Some of you are afraid to say what you need to say because you know it's going to cost. Well, welcome to the world of forward progress. Welcome to the world of freedom. Every time I drive by that little church on the north side of Niles, and it's got its little sign up about how much freedom costs, yes, I'm reminded. But I'm here to tell you today, with the advent of postmodernism and the dissipation of truthful, honest, disimpassioned dialogue about ideas, the Romans are coming. And if you cannot see in the modern movements of the modern dialogues about modern controversies in our society, the onslaught of might making right, you need to think again. I'm holding in my hands an invitation to an event that will be by and large the singular most controversial event maybe ever held in this church. It's entitled COVID, Coercion, and Conscience. Now let me tell you, this is not an anti-vaccination event any more than we're anti-mask or anything else. This is a dialogue about how to treat COVID without waiting around until you end up on a ventilator in a hospital. This is a dialogue about voluntary choice, not mandatory compulsion. This is a dialogue about an issue in which not only has the VA hospital mandated that all of its employees will be vaccinated, but the governments of New York and California have decided for their citizens that if you want a paycheck from us, you will take this injection. Now, just because we're in the flyover part of the world doesn't mean that we're beyond the reach of modern culture. And I'm here to suggest to you today that it's one thing if all the new hires at any of our health institutions need to be injected and they get to decide that. But if you're currently working for an institution and you're being forced to take an injection, you need to think about this. Poster sent to me. It's got a nurse on it. Mask, glasses, young. This is what it says. A year ago, nurses were called heroes. Today, many are being fired for making a personal health choice. I stand for freedom, not force. Hashtag stop the mandate. Now listen. A year ago, and I'm not here as a Republican or a Democrat, a year ago, or even less than that, a political leader in our country said, children don't even get this disease. You know why, you know, we can fact check this stuff. Of course they do get it. But the idea that they should die from it is almost a statistical non-probability. It is a non-probability. It's almost a statistical non-issue. And yet, do you remember the conversations we had in this country for a while? The modern news media was playing up Kawasaki disease and how somehow it was related. Eventually it went away, which was good because it was soundbite science, what they decry on the other side. If there cannot be an honest discussion about vaccination and you have to take it to keep your livelihood tell me what we can discuss and if you have to be an expert to understand it I guess all of us should roll up our shirt sleeve and say give it to me I don't know any better now I know there are many listening to me today who got it good but you got it out of your own free will and that's what a free society allows for and the truth is, is that at the moment that my livelihood is tied to a health choice which is no longer personal for me, we're on very dangerous ground. The Romans are coming. This is not the mark of the beast. We are not anti-vaccination. We're just not mandatory vaccination. 
And we believe people should be able to talk about it. I'm a good boy. I did what my mama told me. But my first allegiance is not to a church. And it's not to a spouse. And it's not to a paycheck. I used to keep on the credenza in the last church I pastored a little pamphlet by Mel Reese. I kept it there because I believed in education, page 57. And I chose to live education, page 57. And by God's grace, that's who this preacher will be until I no longer breathe or I see Jesus. And that is not for preachers. That is for every human being. From Tank Man to Martin Niemöller to you. Conscience, Luther would say at Worms, it is neither safe nor prudent to go against. And that conscience is to be calibrated by the Word of God in a living relationship. But my little pamphlet, uh, my little credenza said this. This was the title. I work for God. And I live for God. And that's what you are called to do. And if a job or a promotion or a friendship is more precious to you than truth, the Romans have already made it. And the citadel of the soul has been besieged, if not conquered. Friends, not flattered, not bribed, not terrified. Let truth triumph, and with it liberty and freedom and the pursuit of happiness. In the meantime, there's a price to pay. If you quail, which is Old English, William Miller used the phrase, he's not quailed before men. If you quail in an hour of conscience, woe be unto those who stand in your shadow and look to you for leadership. Woe to that one soul who needed to hear somebody say, you come to me in the name of your gods, but I come in the name of Israel whom you've defied this day. Open, honest dialogue is not only the American way, it is the Christian way, and it is the way of liberty. Ad hominem argument is evil and dark, and maneuvering behind the scenes, listen to me, internet audience, maneuvering behind the scenes to preempt and destroy that process is as dark as the days of Caiaphas. May God be praised. May we walk in the shadow of Jesus Christ. And may we know He walked that lonesome valley so that somebody would always walk with us. Amen.